Let's continue in 1 Peter 4 as we study about our pilgrim journey, being followers of Jesus Christ in the face of hostility, steadied by grace. You're learning this hymn, A Debtor to Mercy. And we sang of that time when we bowed down at his throne forever and always secure. The original text is more happy, but not more secure. A debtor to mercy. More happy in the fullness of joy, but not more secure. We are as secure now in God's mercy as pilgrims facing hostility as we will be in heaven. We heard from Psalm 109. The, the wicked oppressing with their words, with their hate, with their attacks. And now we come to our study of the pilgrimage in the face of hostility as Peter unfolds what it means to deal with the pressures of worldliness. On the way to the celestial city, Christian and faithful must pass through vanity fair because they dress differently because they talk differently the townspeople consider them to be outlandish men in Bunyan's text foreigners they don't fit in perhaps they're even madmen and when Christian and faithful see all the goods all the 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 wares in the marketplace they reject them citing the prayer of Psalm 119.37, turn away my eyes from beholding vanity. The people of Vanity Fair are offended when Christian and faithful won't participate in all of the city's offerings. That offense turns to anger and the pilgrims are arrested for disturbing the peace. The pilgrims would not go along with the world's pursuit of pleasure. And at first it was an annoyance. And then it became a problem. So the pilgrims were maligned, falsely accused, and persecuted. That portion of Bunyan's story seems to be taken from Peter's paragraph in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And Peter writes, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Our big idea is simple. Don't give in to the pressures of worldliness. 
Don't give in to the pressures of worldliness. And you'll face them this week. Perhaps from actual people and movements and ideas, but perhaps just in in your own mind. The rudiments of the world, Colossians warns us about. The basic thinking blocks that shape ideas. They creep into our way of thinking. They call us to more and more worldliness. Peter's point as he begins this paragraph is simple. Don't give in to the pressures of worldliness. Even if that resistance produces in the world not only a hostility and antagonism, but perhaps even a persecution. What should you know about the pilgrim life in order to resist the pressures of worldliness? What does Peter tell us in this paragraph about the pilgrim life that would help us this week to stand against this onslaught of worldly ideas, temptations? I want to give you six thoughts that Peter highlights so that we as pilgrims can resist worldliness. Number one. Peter says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking that Christ had. It may seem like a war to resist worldliness, because it is. So Peter uses this word, arm yourselves, equip yourselves, make yourselves ready. And one of the contexts of the use of this word is to weaponize to load your weapon. If you were at the range and preparing to shoot, you would load the ammunition into your gun and generally then do some kind of maneuver that would put one of those bullets into the chamber of the gun so it's ready to shoot. That's the idea here. It's not just, oh, I kind of know what to do in the case of an event that comes. No, it's, it's arm yourselves now. It, it is now time for the battle. In the Old Testament language, you would read of armies that would set the battle in array. You can see it in 1 Samuel when David's brothers are on one side of the valley and Goliath and the Philistines are on the other. And it says the armies set the battle in array. In other words, they they kind of got their shields and their weapons on and they stood in their formations, but they weren't fighting yet. They were just kind of dressed and ready, a show of strength. This word takes it one step further. It's it's load your weapons because now you're, you're going into the battle. Suddenly this idea of a pilgrimage isn't just my walking stick and I'm on some hike hoping to get to the homeland. It's the realization that you, like an elite force of our military, has been dropped into a war zone and you have to make it to your destination. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. We're in a war. And one of the great mistakes of your Christian life would be to underestimate God's words to you in Ephesians 6. To be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. To which we might think, what's the big deal here, Paul? 
Christians in Ephesus, we're getting along okay. We, we, we know what the word says. We're trying to get it right. Why all the intensity? Be strong in the Lord, in the power of his might. Paul explains why. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. If you think little of your enemy, you will think little of the need for vigilance, for strength. And if you aren't leaning on the strength which the Lord provides, you won't stand, as we're told to do in Ephesians 6. And when you don't stand, you're surrendering to the pressures of worldliness. And so we back up that chain of thought and realize it is all important that I recognize I am in a battle against spiritual wickedness. This is a war. And the strategy of my enemy is to pull me more and more toward the world's way of thinking. We see that in Romans 12 when Paul writes to the church at Rome, stop being conformed to the world. Stop following the schematic of the world, is what the text says. The world has a plan to draw us away from pursuing Christ in his kingdom. And it may be very gradual steps, but it is an intentional plan. Stop following it. You are in a war. Don't give in to worldliness, Peter says. And what he wants you to know in order to not give in to worldliness is that you need to have the mindset of a soldier. A handful of you have served in the armed forces. And you know some of the intensity and the discipline and some of even the danger of war. The rest of us know it from reading and watching movies. However we learn it, we must learn it. Because the Bible is telling us in military terms, ready yourself for a war. Because when you hear this admonition, hey, don't be like the world, that is no small warning or challenge. Don't give in to worldliness. It may seem like war because it is. And this battle implies warring armies, and so Peter is addressing those who have declared their allegiance to their captain, their Lord, Jesus Christ. You may be here today and you've never repented of sin. You've been in church often and you're here today, but you've never believed in Jesus. You've never trusted him for righteousness, for the forgiveness of sin, for eternal life. You've never declared that he is Lord. You're not in his army. You're not battling against the pressures of worldliness. Rather, you're pursuing them. Oh, it may be subtle because you want people to think maybe you're a good person. But the reality is there are only two sides in this battle, in this war. There is the kingdom of God and there is the world. And you need to declare today your allegiance to one or the other. And the Bible says, come find your rest in Christ. Come find your joy in Christ. Come find your peace your hope in Christ. 
What should you know about the pilgrim life? In order to resist the pressures of worldliness, know that it's a war. Secondly, know that a renewed mind is an essential weapon of your warfare. A renewed mind is an essential weapon. Peter, by inspiration, writes, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Now, he has already told us, since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, that's the same language we saw in the previous chapter, he suffered the righteous for the unrighteous. So that, that's speaking of his life, death, and ultimately then his resurrection. Christ suffered in the flesh. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Here's the, here's the tough question. How are we to know what part of Christ's thinking process is being highlighted by Peter? All, all Peter says, he just kind of points us back to that language of Christ suffering for our sin. So what part of Christ leaving heaven's glory as becoming the incarnate Son of God, living a righteous life, dying the atoning death on the cross, rising from the... What part of his thinking process in all of that are we supposed to arm ourselves with? What thought was Christ armed with when he suffered in the flesh? Or as Matthew would lead us to question, what led Christ to drink the cup of God's wrath? Or from Philippians 2... Why was Christ obedient unto death, even the death of the cross? Or from Hebrews 12, we might ask, why did Christ despise the shame and endure the cross? What part of Christ's thinking does Peter want us to have in mind here? Arm yourself with the same thinking. I think the answer is found here in the context of our verse. Let's read the whole sentence to get a better feel for the thought. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. I would submit to you that the thinking that Peter is telling us have the same thinking of Christ is there at the end of verse 2. Christ was driven by doing the will of God. Now, how could I support that? I would go to at least two references. Right there at the end of Christ's ministry when he's about to go to the cross and accomplish this work of redemption. First, he's praying with the disciples on the way from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane, John 17, what we call the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And in that prayer, he tells the Father that he has accomplished the work that the Father had given him to do. He's basically acknowledging, this is completing your will for why I was sent. And then just moments later in the garden as he prayed alone, facing the horror of bearing sin for all who would believe 
and its judgment, he surrenders himself to the will of God by saying, not my will, but yours be done. So when Peter says Christ suffered for our sins, and you should think the same way, he then tells us what the same way is. Not living any longer for the passions of the flesh like the Gentiles would live, but instead giving yourself to the will of God. Rarely do we ask, what is God's will? In the daily matters of life, oh, when it's the job change, the move across the country, you know, should we sell the house? Suddenly we get all concerned about what God thinks. But Peter's point is, if you're going to resist the pressures of worldliness, you had better have a mind renewed perpetually by what God thinks of your behavior, of how you should live. It's like when you use the apps on your phone for maps. And I would suggest some of you are a little too dependent on them, right? You know how to get to Hy-V by now. Stop looking at the map, all right? Turn left here. Well, yeah, that's coming out of your driveway. You probably know which way to go. But what do we do? We get those maps and we just follow it. And sometimes you might miss the turn. You were in the wrong lane. So it recalculates, it renews its mind based on what it knows of the surrounding roads so that you ultimately get to the right place. Well, so it is in the Christian life. We constantly need the renewal of our minds based on what we know of God's character and commands. All the more so when we miss the turn when we lose our temper, when we yield to fear or lust or envy, and we know we've sinned, we repent of that sin, and now we renew our minds with God's character, with his command, and now we know we're back on course. The world says sex is a casual, carefree act that anyone can enjoy for pleasure. Our question is, as pilgrims, Is that what God says? We must renew our minds according to God's will. And you've heard this before. It's there in Romans 12. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship. Stop being conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, why? So that you might prove what is the good and acceptable, what? Will of God. It's the same line of thought that Peter has here. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. The way you resist worldliness is by factoring in, what does God say about this? What does God want from me as a husband, as a wife, as a teenager? What does God think? Because it doesn't matter what you think. Jesus is Lord. So what he thinks should shape your response, your behavior. So Peter isn't saying anything new here. It's not really mysterious. There are other ways to have the mind of Christ, but here... It seems he's saying, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking that led Christ to perpetually pursue Calvary, 
and the suffering that awaited him. It was because he was set on doing the will of God. And if you're going to make it through this pilgrim life, not bailing out on godliness and saying, forget it, it's too hard. If you're going to make it, it will be because you have God's will set before you and you, and you decide that is most important. Peter is saying in verse 1, if you're willing to do God's will, even if you should suffer for it like Christ did, then that is clear evidence that your life is governed not by sinful passions, but by the Lord Jesus Christ. So arm yourself with this way of thinking. If you're going to resist worldliness, it will be because you remember you're in a battle. And tomorrow, the radio and the television and any streaming apps and the billboards and the people you work with and your own flesh are going to try to convince you to live more and more like the world. It's a battle. One of the ways you weaponize yourself in preparation for the battle is with a renewed mind, a mind constantly being calibrated by what God wants. Number three. Further, we recognize in this pilgrim life in order to resist worldliness that sin no longer has power over us. Peter says, if you arm yourself with the same way of thinking, whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. If you're willing to suffer as Christ suffered, if you're willing to commit to doing the will of God and, and rejecting the appeal to the flesh to the point that you would even suffer for it as you are perhaps as a pilgrim, as an exile, that would be evidence then that you belong to Christ, that you've made him Lord, that you've yielded yourself and your members as instruments of righteousness and you reckon yourself dead to sin. That's Paul's language of Romans 6. Peter just says, if you're willing to suffer for Christ, then that's the evidence that you're done with sin and you're about righteousness. You're done with the passion of the Gentiles. The time for that is gone. Now the rest of your days on earth are to be lived for the kingdom of God, to do his will. Peter says you resist worldliness when you remember it actually has no ability to pressure you. It has no power over you. When Peter says you've ceased from sin, he's not talking about perfection. This is not an inability to sin. You don't have such an ability. So Peter is not saying you are unable to sin now. You're off limits to temptation. We all know from experience that's not true. He's not talking about perfection. This is not an inability to sin. Rather, Peter is talking about power, the ability to not sin. You see, there's a difference between the inability to sin, I can't sin, I'm perfect. That's not who we are. He's talking about power, the ability to not sin. Romans 6. Reckon yourself, decide, nail it down, believe 
what Christ has accomplished for you and say, sin no longer has dominion over me. It doesn't hold the keys to the handcuffs. I'm trapped in my sin. I can't help it. That's not true if you are in Christ. Peter is telling pilgrims, you can resist worldliness in the way of the Gentiles because you are no longer a slave to sin as they are. Believe that you can refuse to sin, that Christ has broken sin's chains of bondage. And therefore, hear Peter's challenge to the church, to the pilgrims when he says, resist the pressures of worldliness. With this confidence, those pressures have no power over me. And our questions that arise here, but what about this and what about this? This sin seems so great and this addiction is strong. It, it, it belies the fact that we, we haven't really come to grips with the sufficiency of Christ's work. Have we grappled with the words of Christ that if the Son will make you free, you will be free indeed? So shame on us for saying things like, I just can't help it, or I just couldn't stop myself. No, you didn't want to stop. Sin no longer has power over you. You only sin when you choose to sin as a Christian. Which leads us to our fourth thought here in helping us to resist the pressures of worldliness. Desire for God will drown out sinful desires. Peter writes in verse 3, The time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. In other words, yes, you used to be an unbeliever, you used to live a certain way, and it'll be described here. However, that is the past. Now, we're looking forward, and which is kind of verse 2. We live the rest of the time in the flesh. The rest of the time we're alive here on earth, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So we look at verses 3 and 4, we see a lot of words about desire. We saw it in verse 2, the human passions. We see the will of God. Verse 3, what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passion or desire. There's a contrast being set here for us. What I want to do and what God wants me to do. It's most clear in verse 2. Live for the rest of the time that you have on earth. No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Those are our two choices. So here's the question. Do I want what God wants more than what I want? You say, well, the scales are kind of biased because it started with, do I want? But this is the nature of the Christian life when we face temptation. 
Temptation, James tells us, is trying to draw us away from our desire for God by our own lusts and entice us away, trying to appeal to what I want. And yet James is acknowledging you're going to have to decide what do you want more, what you want or what God wants. And Peter is saying the same thing. Live for the rest of your time on earth. Not for what you want, human passions, but for what God wants. You have to make your choice. This is the struggle of the pilgrim journey. This is the walk of sanctification. This is running the race with endurance and laying aside the sin that so easily clings to us. I am not saying, boy, this this would be spectacular if you could actually find a Christian who sins because they should just be done with it. It's that simple. No, go back to point number one. It's a war. But we keep fighting, and in this war, what we come to realize is a desire for God is my greatest weapon against the desires that temptation appeals to. We see this in the language of Romans 13. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in parties and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Put on Christ so that you don't gratify the desires. So what is the weapon against desires? The weapon is desire. Love God so that you won't love the world. Oh, you could stand there looking at Vanity Fair and say, oh, oh, don't want that. Oh, don't want that. Oh, don't want that. And we could keep thinking of all the things we're not supposed to want. And I say, good luck with that. The Bible says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Fill yourself up with his goodness, with his sufficiency, with his holiness, with his virtue. Satisfy desire with Christ so that you don't look for all the world's efforts at satisfying ourselves. Your greatest defense against the appetite for worldliness is to be satisfied with who God is and what he's done for you in Christ. But that takes spiritual effort. That that, that comes down to things like theology. What has God said? What has God told us that he's done? How has he delivered his people before? What has he done for me? How is Christ the center of God's work on my behalf? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Doesn't mean we don't hear the second part of that. We should make no provision for the flesh. When we struggle with what we watch, you might need to just not stream stuff for a while. The phone causes you problems, you might go to the dumb phone instead of the smartphone. There's some common sense 
that comes from the scriptures when it says, run away from youthful lust. And to use a very active word that says literally just get away from it. The most spiritual thing might be something very practical. However, all of these measures of accountability and kind of safeguarding and trying to protect will fall flat if we don't hear the admonition put on the Lord Jesus Christ. If we don't realize that all of those things are only designed to help us in a moment of weakness from pursuing something we really don't want, then we'll, we'll put way too much stock in those things. We'll lean way too hard on them, and they are not equipped to hold us up. Only Christ holds us up. So we lean hard on Christ. We recognize, I need to develop a want for him. I need to develop an appetite for the goodness of God. I need to become a person who says things like, I've tasted and seen that God is good. So that when the devil says, I bet this would be awesome. Like Moses, we say, you know, there probably would be pleasure in that for just a little season. And then comes all the guilt and shame and hurt that sin always comes with. So no, I'll pass on that because I found something more satisfying. We're delivered from worldly desires by spiritual desire. We have to fight the battle in our desire, our want, our heart. So put on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to sin less this week, you better have a better plan than don't give in to temptation. It won't be enough. Instead, start with, what would it mean for me this week to put on the Lord Jesus Christ? I suppose I could preach about it next week, but I think just as simply, you could meditate and study your Bible this week. What does that mean? What would it mean to treasure Christ or to be satisfied with him so that I don't have an appetite for the world? Think that through. What should you know about the pilgrim life in order to resist the pressures of worldliness? Number five, you should know that those who think holiness is a joke will stand before the judge who does not. You see, Peter says, this is what's going to happen. With respect to this, he says in verse 4, the way that they go about living their lives, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. Now, they're not advertising it that way. That's Peter's description of it. Their way of advertising it is, what's the big deal? Everybody does this. This is just the way it is. There's no problem with this. Or I'm just being true to myself. Or they have all kinds of ways. They're not calling it, oh, this is horrible evil. They're just saying this is the way it is. It's the status quo. We see it there at the end of 1 John 2 when we're told, don't love the world or the things of the world. It's all passing away. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. There's the summary of it all. But they invite you to participate in all of this. And when 
you don't participate. The text says they are surprised. But then the next verb is they malign you. They're surprised and they malign. The majority of us in this room are probably old enough to recognize that we've seen a transformation in American culture where we always felt, in a sense, like the majority. Uh, Judeo-Christian ethic dominated the, the thought process of American culture. It was a national uh, kind of label, a, a national way of life. It was our culture. But now we're beginning to see things change. Now, we've moved beyond just the surprise that the church might, you know, not be into drunken parties. The surprise that the church might stand against abortion. The surprise that the church would would be so prudish or puritanical about sexuality. But that surprise has now given way to what Peter would call reviling or maligning. It's not just you think differently, it's that the way you think is actually evil, it's bad. It's not good for us as a society or a culture. The world is shocked indeed when people do not agree with their homosexuality or so-called gay marriage. They are surprised that you would oppose medical procedures for a middle schooler to attempt a gender change. They really are taken back. They're incredulous that you would stand against what they claim to be a woman's right and even need to abort her child. But their response has not stopped with shock and surprise. It has progressed to maligning and to attacking. Your biblical views are now considered not just old-fashioned, but hateful, offensive, degrading. You're actually evil. And so the words of the prophet of what we would have thought was this horrible culture of idolatrous Israel long ago when they call good evil and evil good has now unfolded right in front of us. Peter says, you'd better know something when you're facing that kind of culture. When you begin to feel that sinking feeling that you're the minority, you're the pilgrim, you're the exile, and now it's not just that you're different, but now your difference is being labeled as hurtful and hateful and evil. Peter says, verse 5, but. Contrast with that. They're maligning you for standing for righteousness, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Don't give in to the pressures of worldliness. They'll be loud, angry, antagonistic. But their voices will be stopped by the righteous judge. So file that away. 
Peter thinks that's important enough to give a whole verse to as a pilgrim resisting worldliness, being maligned for your pilgrim stand. Peter says, know this, they will give an account to the judge. Which puts us at ease. In some way, we don't have to fix them. We don't have to argue every point of their evil. We shine a light and we, yes, we give a reason for the hope that's in us. But they don't answer to us. They don't answer to Christianity as a whole. They don't answer to the church. They answer to the judge. And the psalmist warns us often not to stew over the prosperity of the wicked. So Peter takes all of this and he uses it as his argument for don't give in to worldliness. I know they're loud. I know they're aggressive. I know they're attacking you now. But the judge will take care of it all. He will vindicate. He will make it right. Finally, what should we know to resist the pressures of worldliness? We should know that the gospel has the power to transform sinners. So what does it mean in verse 6 that the gospel was preached to the dead? For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So what does it mean for the gospel to be preached even to those who are dead, the result being, even though they're judged in the flesh, as all men are, they die, that's the curse, they live in the spirit as God does, everlasting life. What does it mean? Well, I'm not sure. <laughs> Two possibilities from the text. One, those who are dead are dead spiritually. They hear the preaching and indeed they may possibly believe and come to know eternal life. This would be a, a twist on the word dead because just in the verse before it was used for physical death. So some would argue, well, then it probably means physical death in the next verse. It may, or it could be a play on words, which would be common in, in the language as well. That would work. It would fit the text that we preach the gospel even though people are spiritually dead with the hope that they might know everlasting life. The other option would be that the gospel was preached, as the text says, the gospel was preached to those who are now dead. If you were with us last time, we encountered this in Peter's description of, in Noah's day, the Spirit preached to the spirits who were in prison. And what we saw there was that the preaching happened in Noah's day to those people but they died back in Noah's day in the flood, and they are now in prison, the bondage of judgment. So this may be the very similar structure where Peter just doesn't give us the word now. And he's just referencing, yes, the gospel was preached to them, and now they're dead. And though they've been judged in the flesh as all men, they've died, they live. They live because their faith is in Christ. And the righteous judge has gotten that right. In either case, 
This is what I want us to see as Peter's point. The preaching of the gospel is held out as the contrast to standing before God and being judged. Because when you look at verse 6, it begins with the word for. It's an explanation. And I'm saying that even if the explanation isn't crystal clear, it doesn't add the weight because we're trying to figure out what it means, we should be able to still draw the right conclusion. So they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And at the bare minimum, what I want you to see is that in contrast to standing before God and being judged by him is the preaching of the gospel. That's what makes the difference. It's that deliverance of the good news of Jesus Christ that becomes the, the change, the hinge on which life turns. Am I a Gentile giving myself to pursuing passions of the flesh? Or I, am I giving myself to pursue the will of God? What's the difference? And the difference is the preaching of Christ crucified. He makes the difference. Peter's point is, we share our hope in Jesus with people who are throwing their lives away in the pursuit of some kind of satisfaction or gratification. And they're facing certain judgment. We, with confidence, are heralding, are proclaiming this good news that Jesus Christ can powerfully transform sinners. So how does it fit with Peter's big idea? We're supposed to resist worldliness. Here's what he's telling us. That world is going to attack you for your stand as a pilgrim. And even when they do, you need to see who that person is. They're going to stand before God and be judged for their rebellion. And their only hope is the proclamation of the good news. So do you know anybody who is pursuing some kind of pleasure in this world, but to no avail? Do you know anyone who is chasing and not finding? Anyone who is drinking and never satisfied? It may be that coworker. And their pursuit looks like boats and lake weekends and money and fun and chief season tickets and all kinds of stuff. Anything just to satisfy, to, to show a little bit of life has meaning. For others, it's a life of addiction and prostitution that has led them to homelessness and self-abuse that, that is, would just make you disgusted to even see the conditions in which they live. And the whole spectrum in between. Peter is saying, yes, this world will malign you, but remember, they, they will stand judged by a holy God, and their only hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul would say, I, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation to all who believe. Because you aren't the one in charge of election and predestination and don't know who will believe, you proclaim the good news this week. Let your light shine. 
Resist worldliness and live the pilgrim life because someone needs to see that Jesus could transform their life too. Some of you have family members who are throwing their lives away, just like the text says. Some of you were living a life that pretty much looked like throwing your life away. And now Peter just says, listen, for the rest of your time in this body that you have on this earth, live your life for the will of God. Resist worldliness. Because your choice to be godly this week may be the gospel announced to someone that you work with, someone in your neighborhood, someone in your family, so that they will see that Jesus transforms sinners. Don't give in to the pressures of worldliness. Evangelist in Bunyan's story told the pilgrims on their journey, above all, pay attention to your own hearts with their lusts, for they are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Set your faces with flint-like resolve, since you have all power in heaven and earth on your side. We have no excuse for worldliness this week. We have all power of heaven and earth on our side. And by that power, we can obey Peter's call to the church. Live for the rest of your time for the will of God. Heavenly Father, that seems simple. To live for the rest of our time for the will of God. Help us to figure out what this will look like in our marriages, in our parenting, in our work ethic, in our witness to the lost, in our use of resources, time, and money, in our consideration of entertainment. In every way, help us to resist worldliness, the philosophies of this world, the building blocks of their thinking, the traditions of men. May we be consumed with what you think of us, what you think of our lifestyle, what you think of our budget, what you think of our marriage and parenting for the rest of our time. May we be consumed with doing what you want. And as we do that, may men see our lives, our light, our good works, and glorify you, our Father in heaven. Thank you for this hope that is ours from Peter's words to us. Thank you for using him to give us the encouragement on our pilgrim journey. We can resist. We're more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. And so we rest in Jesus, even as we pray in his name. Amen.